Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you all for this time and this place and this gathering to worship you, to learn more about you, to connect with you, Lord. I just pray that you will speak through Kevin um, and just touch our hearts. Just allow us to be open and receive your word. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Thank you guys for being here this morning. There you go. I think I'm on. There we go. So, appreciate you guys being here this morning. Um, if you guys want to go ahead and give Stephen Cruz a round of applause, he won the Chili Fest yesterday. So, for those of you guys that didn't make it yesterday, you missed a good time. Uh, lots of good food. Uh, a bounce house that was used by children of all ages. Um, so, uh, but we had a good time yesterday evening and appreciate you guys uh, being here and, and coming out and having a good time with us. So, um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 3. As you guys just heard uh, Ginger kind of read our text for this morning. Um, we're just going to continue to kind of work our way through this amazing letter um, that Paul penned to the church at Rome. And I'm sure some of you would agree um, if, you, if you've been here the last several weeks, um, that uh, maybe I'll use the word interesting to describe <laughs> what we've been uh, studying over the course of the last several weeks. Um, because we've, we've kind of seen Paul do two, two big things um, over, over the last month or so. Uh, and one, we've seen Paul be very repetitive, right? And, I, and it, you know, I, I think if you've read any of the other New Testament epistles, you know that Paul just kind of tends to do that in general. Um, and, and there's a reason to that. Uh, Paul's, Paul's making, uh, being, being adamant about making sure uh, that the Romans understand that the sin and wrath of God are, are very real issues. And, and here's the thing. Uh, I, I, I've had people over the course of time be like, hey, like, this is so repetitive. We're doing the same thing over and over again. This is a problem. And, and yet I think about how we actually as human beings kind of take in information and kind of tend to retain it. What do we do? We repeat it. Any of you guys that study for tests or prepare for anything, what do you do? You repeatedly study information so as to memorize it. And so Paul, in reality, is making sure that he kind of drives his point home and it kind of sticks with you guys. And so he's been, he's been repetitive. He's been continuing this theme over the, the course of the last several weeks as we've been looking at the scriptures of his sin is real. All struggle with it and all fall underneath the wrath of God because of this sin. But the other thing that we've seen, and this has maybe been the much more kind of real, uh, tangible thing that we can take away from the text, is he's been very direct in his approach to what he's been presenting. 
And what I mean by that is not only has he been repetitive in the information, uh, but he has uh, not uh, minced his words. He has not in some way tried to maybe uh, put, a, put a bow on what he's been saying and be nice about it. He's, he's, he's been very, very consistent about being direct and saying, you struggle with this, I struggle with this, this people group struggle with this, the Jews struggle with this. Everyone is underneath the same umbrella when it comes to the issue of our sin. We need to take it seriously and we need to understand how it relates between us and God. We need to understand how God views this and how we respond to him. And so, you know, the, the reality is, is that many of us can fail to kind of recognize the severity that sin plays in our lives. And I don't just mean from an eternal perspective vertically and how it relates with, uh, with God, but it also how it impacts us horizontally, how it impacts our relationship, how it impacts our you know, psychological state, how it impacts the way that we conduct business or the way that we might uh, have relationships with people, that, that sin has both a, a vertical connotation but also a horizontal connotation. And so what Paul's been doing as he's been trying to kind of directly reveal this to us is he's calling both the Gentile and Jewish audience in Rome to recognize their sin and repent. And for us as the readers, he's calling us to that same thing. Now, here's the danger and, and you know, something I kind of wrestle with as we kind of work through the book of Romans, right? I know that as, as human beings, right, we can kind of tend to do two things, especially if we're addressing sin, Right? We're, we're, we tend to, instead of kind of do what we need to do, which is repent and then kind of revel in the glories of God's grace towards us and let that propel us to obedience, we kind of either tend to wallow in our sin. Right? We see it, we, see, we read Paul and what he's saying here, and we recognize it, and then we just kind of get defeated. And we sit around and we you know, beat ourselves up, and, and we become legalistic and depressed in our approach right, to sin, right? And I would say that that is hopefully not what you've been taking away over the course of the last several weeks as I've hopefully pointed you to the cross at the end of every sermon, which is where we need to be taking this. But the reality is, is we can kind of fall into this trap of focusing more on the sin than we focus on the Savior. But the other thing that we can equally do just as much is see this sin and say, oh, I'm not going to treat it seriously, which is exactly what Paul's audience was doing in reality. You know, you had the Gentiles who were like, I'm not going to worry about this at all. I'm not going to consider sin something to actually worry about at all. But then you have the Jewish audience who says, well, we're, we're culturally, right, pure and superior to everyone else. I'm not going to take my sin seriously either. And so the reality is, is Paul has a point in doing all this. That he's very much so trying to drive this forward. And, and so when we get to our text this morning in Romans chapter 3, it's kind of one of those moments where I get excited because what we've seen over the last several weeks is this kind of harsh, direct, prophetic side of Paul where he's calling his audience to recognize the full counsel of God and what God has to say about the law. But this morning we're going to see kind of the more calm, collected pastoral side of Paul the evangelist. 
right, as he tries to address the heart issues of those that he's writing to. Right, one of the things I, I, I think we kind of need to take away this morning as we're studying the text, and it's not going to maybe be the primary thing we, we take away, but it's something important for all of us in this room to take seriously if we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. Right? If you are a disciple, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that if you are a follower of Christ and you've been made a new creation, here's what is true of you. You are an ambassador of the ministry of reconciliation. Which means that you have a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job that does not take a day off in representing God and his kingdom here on earth. That is the, the call of every Christian. Every Christian is in full-time ministry. That's the, what the scripture teaches us. It's not just someone who is a, a full-time pastor or works for the church or, or works for a campus ministry or some other parachurch organization. That every single professing Christian is in full-time ministry. That is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us. And so if we understand that properly then, seeing what Paul does this morning should really cause us to pause and take notice of what he does because the reality is this. It's not just enough for us as ambassadors of the message of reconciliation to have a model or a method of evangelism. Right? And, 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 don't, and, and hear me out on this. I'm not, I'm not bashing models or methods for evangelism. I, I use one. I, I very much believe that it's a, a good way to systematically teach someone how to share their faith and communicate the gospel with others. But what often gets lost when we, when we rely too heavily on a model or method in presenting the gospel to people is we forget that the goal of evangelism is not only to clearly present the gospel message but do so in such a way that engages the heart questions and objections of the person that you're talking to. Right? I remember when I was in seminary, I was in a, a personal evangelism class, and I had to read this book, and I won't mention the name of it because it's terrible, and I don't want any of you guys to read it. And the, the kind of the, the method of evangelism, for those of you guys that have been in my community group, we've already talked about this. The method of evangelism was you sit down with somebody and you just pick some specific verses in the Bible and then you have the other person read them and explain them to you. And that the goal of that method of evangelism would be to take somebody through all these different verses to where if they properly answered the question, they would understand the gospel. Right? Now, here, here is my you know, kind of angst against that method. It's not necessarily a terrible method of evangelism, but the problem is, is it starts at the wrong point. Because if you lead somebody through that entire method of evangelism and they answer all the questions correctly for you and then you get to the end of that method of evangelism, you're like, well, you ready to accept Christ? And you're like, well, no, I don't believe the Bible is authoritative. You've just wasted a ton of time with that person, yet haven't answered their heart questions. Right? How, can, how can they trust the Bible? How can we know that the Bible has authority? How can we know that these are the very words of God? How do you even know that those are the questions they're asking? How do you know that the, the verses you're choosing for them to read are ones that are actually answering questions they might have about who God is? And so one thing we need to kind of understand, and this is the beauty of what Paul does here, Paul understands his audience. And so it's kind of weird in these eight verses because he's answering a bunch of questions that haven't necessarily been asked because he's writing a letter. He doesn't have a, an actual audience there that's opening up a forum to do a Q&A with him, yet he anticipates the heart questions that Jews are going to have, and he's going to answer them. 
Because here's his belief, right? As he said in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he believes the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and therefore, if he can answer objections that they might have, the gospel will do the hard work of penetrating their hard hearts to where God might save them. And so, as Paul has engaged the Gentiles and told them all the ways they fall short of the glory of God. And then he engages the Jews, rather harshly I might add. If you've noticed over the course of the last two weeks, he's very, very hard on on the Jewish culture and what they've been doing. He's going to answer the heart questions of the Jews. So look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 3 with me. We're going to kind of break down this sermon this morning by looking at each question individually and kind of unpacking it a little bit. And hopefully it'll help motivate us to maybe understand some ways that we can better impact those that we come in contact with. So Romans 3 verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. All right, so first question Paul's going to kind of try to answer here. What good is it to be a Jew? What, what advantage is there to growing up Jewish? That's the kind of first uh, objection Paul anticipates from the Jewish audience of this letter. Uh, what good is it for us to know the law? What, is, what good is it for us to observe all the traditions um, if we're going to end up under God's wrath just like the Gentiles? That's how, that's how his Jewish audience would have been feeling, right? And it's like, hey, we've, we've followed God. We've been going to synagogue over the years. We've been going to the temple. We've been offering sacrifices. We've been following the law. We've been trying to do these things. What good is it for us to have done all of these things if what you're saying is true, Paul, that we are under the same wrath that Gentiles are? There's really absolutely no advantage to us having been God's chosen people. You know, people growing up in some sort of Christian tradition could really say the same thing. You know, if you, if you grew up going to church as a kid and you thought that being a good Christian meant going to church, uh, memorizing some scripture, participating in a community group, uh, serving your local church body, maybe sharing your faith, um, you know, you could ask the same question. What, what good does it do me to have grown up and done and learned all those things if I still stand guilty before God because of my sin? What advantage would there be to grow, to grow up in a Christian home? Or tradition, if I am still in the same boat as a militant, God-hating atheist. Right, if my sin separates me from God, what advantage was there for me to grow up in that environment? It's a, it's a fair question. I, I, I absolutely believe it's a fair question. And here's Paul's answer to them. It's like, look, there are a ton of advantages for you, but let me just name one for you. He says in verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, here's, what he, here's the translation for that. Jewish audience, you have the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, do you realize what a gift that is to have the very words of God? To see God's faithfulness to your people over the course of 1,500 years. 
to see where God has made promises to you and come through on those promises to you, to see God promise a Messiah to you one day. Do you understand how beautiful that is? That you had the very revelation of who the true God is. While Gentiles were worshiping Thor and trees and the ocean and whatever else that they could possibly come up with to worship, your ancestors actually had the full revelation of who the true God was. It wasn't hidden to them. Yes, every people group on earth has general revelation where they can look at creation and see God. But your ancestors knew him fully. They had a full picture of who he was. Don't be upset. Be thankful that you had this information. Like one thing I want to kind of say to you guys, because we take this, I think we take this for granted in the United States. I really do. And I'm not trying to bang on the U.S. I just think it's like part of the human nature that if you have something, you take it for granted over the course of time. Right, like, you know, one of the things that's fascinated me as, we, as I've done mission trips overseas is I realize how quickly I take for granted how much comfort and ease we have here in the U.S., you know? Like, right now, I would imagine the temperature outside is probably somewhere hovering in the mid-80s. Does anybody feel hot and uncomfortable in here right now? No, because we have this really wild thing called air conditioning, right, that keeps us all cool. If we were in Columbia where our church plant is, Y'all be dying right now because they have air conditioners on the wall and they might work at 20% capacity, right? And so I'm amazed that it's like the longer, right, we kind of live in ease and comfort, right? If, unless you're removed from that, you, you come to take things for granted. And I think there's a tendency for us as Christians, right, especially if you grew up in the church, to take this book for granted, to take the reality of what we've been given in this text for granted. Guys, the, the, this book was written over a 1,600-year period by 40 men across three continents, and yet, in my opinion, is the most amazing and well-attested-to book in human history. That there is no other historical text that you could study from in a scholarly perspective and say, yeah, we have the actual words that were penned by these men. And then to find the congruency of these different authors and yet the way that they attest to the same glories and riches of God without contradicting each other is absolutely astounding. Right? If all of us were to sit here this morning and someone were to, to come in here and you know, do something and then we, you know, let's say they came in here and yelled something real quick and then ran back out of the room and then I pulled 10 people from the audience to come up here and share with me what had happened, I would get 10 different stories that would probably be similar but would not be congruent enough to actually have a coherent story, right? Anybody ever play that game Telephone as a kid? One person says something and whispers something in someone's ear, and by the time it gets to the end, what happens? The message is completely distorted. And yet here you have 1,600 years of writing. Much there's a much larger uh, coverage of human history, but you have 1,600 years of 40 different authors writing and attesting to the glory of God in this book, and you have it congruently fitting together and giving us a full picture of God's revelation. Do you understand how astounding that is? 
we can't get people to agree even on things in the same political party nowadays. And yet to have 1,600 years of human history attest to the glory of God shows how amazing this book is. Now let me add some more on top of this though, because I don't want us to lose sight of this. The Old Testament testifies to God's gracious love and protection and mercy towards the people of Israel. Now understand this for a second. The Jews, as recorded in the Old Testament scripture, survived multiple instances of being conquered by other cultures. And if you know anything about ancient history, if you were conquered by another culture, guess what happened to your religious texts and your cultural, cultural background? It was destroyed. It was not preserved. The entire point of conquering another people would be then to destroy their culture so you could assimilate future generations into your culture. You completely killed them off. And yet you have this relatively small, insignificant tribe from Mesopotamia, Abraham and his descendants, somehow over the course of human history, have their entire lineage and religious history documented and recorded and saved for us. Guys, if you know anything about that time period, the Jews were like the most non-significant group in that region. You had the Assyrians, you had the Babylonians, you had the Philistines. If you study world history at all, guess who you learn about? It's not the Jews. You learn about the actual real world superpowers in that region, and it's not Israel. And yet, God sovereignly preserved the Israelites and his, and his word, more importantly, for us so that he might attest to the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Even post-resurrection, you have the church springing up inside one of the greatest world superpowers, Rome, and you have a government which tried to destroy the spread of Christianity, and guess what happened? The church advanced, people were saved, the New Testament was written, and God's word continues to reign supreme. We sit here almost 2,000 years later. Rome is long gone, and yet the word of God remains. Do you get the magnitude of that? That's what Paul's trying to get across to the Jews. Do you guys get how blessed you are to have grown up Jewish? To have studied the Old Testament to have seen God's faithfulness, to have seen the promises God made to our people. It's not a disadvantage. It's an advantage. Just because you haven't responded to it doesn't mean that it wasn't advantageous for you to grow up Jewish. In the same way, growing up in the church, guys, is not some disadvantage to you. I know that there can be times where we can bang on maybe the deficiencies of our own church or other churches. But growing up and hearing the word of God preached and proclaimed is not a disadvantage. Right? 
God's word has been given to us and hearing godly men and women teach and proclaim the gospel is an advantage for us that we should rejoice in, not be sorrowful over. And Paul says, look, guys, it is not a disadvantage for you to not have grown up a, gen- a Gentile. That growing up in a home where the word of God is proclaimed and you can hear from it consistently is a thing to be rejoiced in. So he's kind of peeling back these heart layer questions where he's like, look, it's not, it's not wrong for you to have grown up Jewish. It's not a, a bad thing for you to have grown up Jewish. For, for us, it's not wrong for you to have grown up in a Christian home. But we still have to kind of peel back these layers and get to the root, which is sin every single time. Because while it is advantageous to have grown up in these traditions, it's not what saves you. And Paul's trying to make that delineation for them. Now, they're going to respond with another objection here. And Paul anticipates it, right? The first one is like, well, you know, I probably shouldn't have just grown up Jewish. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, you had a huge advantage growing up in a Jewish home. You need to understand that. You, you had the scriptures, right? So then here would have been their next kind of objection. Look at verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though. Every one were a liar. As it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, so here's the second question, right? Here's the second objection that Paul's trying to answer. Does Jewish rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah mean that God is faithless towards Israel? Right? Does it mean God doesn't love or care for Israel anymore? Does the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah prove that God doesn't really love his people? If God's people failed their mandate to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, who, who, let me ask you guys, who failed? The people did, not God. Right? Th- let, me, let me give you an example of this because this is, this is I was trying to like kind of wrestle with like what, what is an analogy we can use here? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to use one. So, so follow along with me here, because by asking this question, here's what the Jews are basically saying, okay? Imagine, and even if you're married, still go, go with me on this analogy, okay? Imagine you've been set up on a blind date, okay? You've got, uh, you know, you and this person that you're going on a blind date with have, have, have mutual friends, and your mutual friends have set you up on a blind date. And you're told by your friends that are setting you up on this blind date that the person you are going to be meeting will have blonde hair, brown eyes, be wearing a, a, a blue shirt, and blue jeans. Okay, so you, you show up to, to this meeting place, and you're looking for somebody that has blonde hair, brown eyes, a blue shirt, and blue jeans on. That's what you've been told by your friends. And so you get to the restaurant, and you're waiting on your date to show up, and you're sitting there in the lobby. And this person walks in wearing exactly what you were told they were going to be wearing and looking exactly like what you were told they would look like. And they walk up to you because they've been told what you look like. And they walk up to you and are like, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I'm your friend. You know, we have, we have mutual friends. I, I'm here for the blind date. And you respond, yeah, I'm waiting for a blind date too. Um, Here's what they're supposed to be wearing, and you, you list out all those things, and you look at this person, and you say to them, uh, I don't believe that you're my date, and you walk out. Some of you guys are laughing because the story is absolutely ridiculous, right? It's like, hey, you were told exactly what they're going to be wearing. You were told what they would look like. You walk in, 
right? And, and you're talking to them, you're like, no, it's not the person, right? How many, how many of you guys like The Office, right? Everybody remember the time Michael Scott gets set up on a blind date, right? And he's there at the thing, and, and the woman walks up, and he's, like, not interested. And she's like, is your name Michael? And he's like, no. And then the barista hands him his coffee, and it's Michael, right? <laughs> he's got nowhere to go. Right, so you're sitting there with this person, you've been set up on this blind date, you meet the person, and it, it's not even necessarily that you're not interested, you just don't even believe that's the person your friends promised to you. Now, would you go home that night thinking your date didn't show up, and you call your friends and be like, man, you guys messed up. You, you, she, never, she or he never showed. Right, they, were, they, they were never there. What would your friend think of you? You're an idiot. Right? I talked to my friend. They showed up. They talked to you. Right? Guys, you, like, this story sounds so stupid, but this is what Israel did. Right? They grew up inside of a tradition where they had the oracles of God given to them. And amongst the word of God, they were given a picture of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. So here they have it all laid out for them. Right? Messiah's coming. Here's what he looks like. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to save you. And so then Jesus shows up. Starts performing miracles. Starts doing all these things. Testifying to what the Old Testament prophecies said would be true of the Messiah. And what does Israel do? They reject him. Did God slack on the promises of the Old Testament that he had made to Israel. No, not one. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of them. The responsibility for the faithlessness doesn't fall on God. It falls on Israel, guys. Just like if we see, right, in our own life faithlessness amongst our church or amongst our ministry or amongst our family, it doesn't fall on God, it falls on us. And so, as Paul says here, Christ was sent to you as a full fulfillment of the Old Testament problem. This is Israel's problem, not God's. Yet here's the beautiful thing about this. Right? Paul says, yet God is still faithful. He didn't pull Messiah away. He didn't cancel what Christ would do. Christ still fulfilled the law, still fulfilled his rescue plan. And then, as we can see even in the text here, God continues to pursue Israel even after their rejection of Christ. They've rejected it and had Christ crucified, and yet Paul continues to plead with them on behalf of the Father, repent and turn to him. Guys, this isn't an example of God's faithlessness. It's an example of his faithfulness towards them. And God does the same with us. That we consistently reject the truth we consistently deny what God might be doing in our lives and in our churches, and yet God still lovingly continues to pursue us. In his faithfulness, he forgives and extends mercy. 
and his faithfulness, he continues to drive us and he uses the spirit to convict and call us to repentance so that we might experience and know God as our father. Our faithlessness does not indicate that God is faithless, but rather it further puts on display God's faithfulness. I was like, look, you guys don't get this. Your faithlessness actually further demonstrates the faithfulness of God because God didn't give up on you. So here we go, right? Paul's answering these heart questions. He's like, no, God's still faithful. He still loves you. And so they're going to hear this then. Well, God is still faithful in the midst of my sin? Right, so here's their next objection, right? Look at verses five and six. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Now, now you know, here, here's the question, right? Question three. Wait, Paul, you've said our sin has a purpose. You've said that God is faithful even in the midst of our sin. And our sin shows off the holiness and righteousness of God. Isn't it wrong for God to judge us for our sin then? Right, isn't, it, isn't it wrong for God to judge our sin if it has a purpose to reveal God's righteousness? And Paul's answer is obviously no. Th- this question, by the way, while being patently absurd, <laughs> right, reveals kind of, I think, the, the real condition of the human heart. We don't want to be held accountable for our sin. And so we will look for any way out of being responsible for what we do. Anyway, right, does anybody remember back to Genesis chapter 3, after Eve and Adam eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God shows up, what Adam and Eve do? The first thing they try to do is what? Hide, right? They hide, they, they fashion some clothes for themselves because they're naked, and then they try to hide, right? And, you know, like as it, you know, God, right, God, they're playing hide and seek and God can't find them, you know? It's like, hey, he created everything, and he's omniscient and omnipresent. I don't think you're going to hide very well. Like, hide and seek is not a really fun game for God. And so God's like, you know, come out. I know where you're at. <laughs> and so Adam and Eve kind of roll out, right? And God, pers- you know, God's like, hey, what's going on here? You know, he knows. <laughs> and, and Adam and Eve, you know, start answering questions. And you know what's so fascinating? Like, they, they kind of tend to, like, make excuses, right? And Eve blames the serpent. And we're always like, oh, you know, like this is all Eve's fault. You know, and like in reality, right, who was the one that was given the mandate in the first place in the garden? Adam, right? He's kind of like passively sits by there and lets everything kind of happen, right? But here's the part of Genesis chapter 3 that I think is so fascinating, right? And it shows the depths of our sinfulness. You have Adam and Eve who lived in perfect community with God as their father, They trusted him and knew him. And then after sin enters into the garden, you have complete and utter lack of respect and trust in God. Because God starts to speak to Adam and is like, Adam, what happened here? And Adam's like, it's Eve's fault. And God's kind of like, whatever. And then, but you hear this line that Adam gives to God. The woman you gave me made me eat it. So he's blaming Eve, but who's he really blaming? God. What's Israel doing here? Blaming God. Like, oh, like, it, like, you can't really judge us for this, right? You set us up for failure. Like, our, our, our sin is what kind of creates these problems in the first place. 
like, do you, like, God, this is, this is on you, right? Like, you can't, you can't really judge us. Do you realize what this question is basically saying? God shouldn't judge me for my sin and rebellion. He should thank me. That's what this question's saying. God shouldn't be upset over my sin. He should rejoice in it. He shouldn't be upset about my rebellion. He should thank me for it. You know what that statement reeks of? Pride and self-centeredness. As I say it out loud, it sounds absolutely preposterous, and yet how many of us live in such a way that we actually think this? How many people we come in contact with are so delusional and confused by the by the, conf- the confusing state that sin puts us in that we might believe something like this. And Paul says, do you really want a world where God doesn't judge sin? Like really? If God, if God doesn't hold you accountable for your sin because it reveals his righteousness, do you really want a world where God doesn't end up judging sin? Trust me, you don't. You don't want a world where there's no standards. You don't want a world where there's no justice. We have enough wickedness going on. We don't need a place where there's no standards and justice. So Paul's kind of working through these questions, right? He's, one's kind of building on the other, right? And, and they're like, okay, like we get it, Paul. All right, fine, right? Like I sh- we should be judged for our sin, but look at question four, because they're still going to find a different way to try to weasel their way out of being held accountable for their sin. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So here's the last and kind of final kind of heart question that Paul's going to answer for, for the Jews. If the law doesn't save us, shouldn't I sin more so that God's grace is greater? Shouldn't I just do whatever I want so that, so that God's grace may look all the more amazing? Paul doesn't even really entertain this question, right? What does he say? Your condemnation is just if you believe that. You prove your wickedness by even asking a question like that because you prove you don't understand who God is and you don't get it. You prove that you don't understand grace. So here's how I want to finish up, guys. All right, Paul has given this beautiful picture of how to maybe engage the heart questions of people around us. And he doesn't maybe, you know, maybe these aren't the questions people are asking today. I, I have a feeling they probably are. They're just asking them a different way. Right? Instead of being Jewish, they grew up in a, a culturally Christian environment. You know, you know. But, but every human being has some basic heart questions that they're trying to ask and answer. Right? And, the, and the question is, is are we going to be able to address them? And I, and I believe the scriptures have answers, and we can trust God in that, but we also have to know how to actually engage people on a, on a human and heart level. But I want to focus in on this last objection that Paul answers right here because I think this is a big one in, in, in the life and kind of like cultural season we are in in America right now in 2017 inside the church. Right? And I'm, let, me, let me repeat the question for you. Should, shouldn't I remain or continue to sin more so that God's grace is greater or might abound? 
Right? Many of us probably wouldn't say that directly, but many of us live a lifestyle that asks that question. Many of you guys have friends, people in ministry that live in that way. Many of us preach a gospel that pushes people to that conclusion. Many of us will love, you know, like, let me give you guys an example, right? We had, you know, Richard Spencer in town this week, and so there were signs up all over town. And, and like, here's, like, the, the thing, like, you know, I'm not anti-counter-protest or anything like that, you know. But, you know, like, I, I'm driving down 34th Street, and I see a sign up on the wall that says, love is love is love, right? And, and you know, people, you know, millennials, I love you guys, I am one. You love stuff like that. It's like, oh, my gosh, love is love. Define that for me. There is nothing of value on that sign. What does that sign mean? Right, there's, there's no definition there. It's, you know, it's like, it's like a child babbling. And you're like, oh, it's so cute. But there's, no, like, there's nothing of actual substance with that statement. And this is the type of stuff that we push Right? And we bring it into the church and we push it forward like a, a, as if it's gospel truth. And it's not, guys. It's where we've allowed the culture right, to dictate to us in such a way as how we might present the gospel. And we have to be careful not to do that. Because the reality is, is the gospel isn't just going to push the grace side of things. It's also going to push the justice side, which we desperately need. We need a God that's going to hold people accountable. We need a God that cares about justice and righteousness. If we just walk around and, and just talk about love is love is love is love, if you don't define love properly, you miss the gospel and you miss God. And so here's, here's what I want to say. We as a church need to properly understand the grace of God. We need to understand what it is, we need to understand what it isn't, and we need to understand how it operates. Guys, God is merciful. God is loving. God is forgiving. The cross speaks all of that to you and I. That Jesus Christ would lay down his own life to forgive you and I for our sins. Yes and amen to all of that. That is real and tangible as an expression of God's love towards us. That the cross is God's grace made manifest before us. But grace and forgiveness and the cross in particular is, is oftentimes today taught incorrectly in the church. Grace and mercy, guys, and, and I, please hear this. If you've heard nothing else today, please hear this. Grace and mercy does not free you from obedience to God. The grace and mercy of God frees you to obedience to God. Everybody tracking that? It doesn't free you from obedience. It frees you to obedience. Right? We'll walk out and say, oh, you can live your life however you want, and then God forgives you and grants you mercy. Well, grace is scandalous. It doesn't matter what you've done. God will forgive you for it. 
But repentance is a part of that. And so God's grace and mercy towards you in repentance is so that you might obey him afterwards after you experience his grace and his mercy. Guys, what God's grace and mercy does, it moves us from trying to earn God's favor and love to already having God's favor and love and obey him because he already loves us. That's how it works. Let me give you an analogy. Right, some of you guys know my son, Gideon. He's six, going on 30. You know, Jackie and I sat down for his parent-teacher conference on Tuesday, and his kindergarten teacher was like, yeah, well, pretty much I'm stealing all of his lesson plans from first grade because he doesn't need any of this. Right, the kid's just really smart. Like, I, like, I am petrified beyond belief to raise him because he's going to be smarter than me in about 45 minutes. <laughs> and so, you know, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, is true about kids, no matter how smart they are, no matter how mature they are, no matter how great they are, is you have rules in a house and they break them. Okay, it's just, it's, it's just you know, a, a universal human truth. Everyone in this room, you at some point broke the rules of your home. Okay, and, and, and you know, Gideon does the same thing. He's actually a pretty darn good kid, but he, he does on occasion break the rules. And so, you know, Jackie and I kind of have a, a, a method of disciplining him and kind of trying to correct, you know, when, when he does something like that. And, you know, when he sits and he breaks the rules, and we can't do this with Josiah yet because he's not, you know, really intellectually as, as aware, but we'll do this with him as he gets older. I'll, I'll sit down with Gideon and I'll correct him, you know, and we'll, we'll sit there and we'll have a conversation. And, and, and the, one of the first things I make sure I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there with him is I, I'm, I'm, I'm making him aware that there was, you know, for lack of a better term, a law in our house that he broke, that he was aware of, and that he is guilty of. Because he needs to know, yes, there is a standard in our house, and you transgress that standard. But then one of the next things I'm quick to do with him is this. I'll say, look, buddy, there's a reason why we have rules in place, and they're for your good. They're, most of them are for your protection. But here's the thing. I'm your dad. And there's nothing you can do to change that. I love you. I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I may not support everything you do, but I love you because I'm your dad. And you are an Anderson. You are a part of this family because I'm your dad. And so I'm, you, you can't change that. You can't change that you're a member of our family. But because you're a member of this family, I, there's some certain ways that you should act. And, and we want you to observe that. I want you to know that. And here's one of the fascinating things as, as we sit there. And, I, and, and, and you know, then I'll go on, I'll say, Dad forgives you, Mom forgives you, Jesus forgives you. And then we'll pray with him. And my wife will attest to this. Because here's one of the beautiful things that we've kind of seen God do in the life of our oldest son. As, as we've disciplined him, Gideon doesn't fear us, right? He may not like that he's being disciplined, but he actually, right, trusts us now. Even in correction, he trusts us. Because he's been affirmed by our love towards him, and yet knows there's still a standard. 
And one of the great joys in my life is seeing Gideon become more obedient as a child, not out of duty and obligation and legalism, but because he loves us. One, you know, there, th some of you guys probably have witnessed this because a lot of you guys come into our home. And when I go to say something to Gideon, you know, because he's doing something, and I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, some of you guys, you know, have been there. We're having dinner, and I'll be like, sorry, we have to stop this conversation. I have to <laughs> fix the chaos right now in my house. And I'll walk off, and I'll grab Gideon, and you'll hear him crying. And then he'll come out, and he'll apologize to Jackie. And most of the time, I don't even have to ask him to do that. You know why he does that? Because he understands that his mom and his dad love him, and he knows he's transgressed, but he also knows that he's going to be loved anyway. And God is working on his heart. Guys, that, that's how grace is manifested in an even more beautiful way with God the Father. Because here's the reality. I fail Gideon constantly. All the time as a dad. One of the most humbling things I ever had to do was apologize to my six-week-old son for screaming at him. Gideon will never share that story because he has no idea it happened, but I do. I'll never forget it. You know, he was sitting there screaming. There was nothing I could do to fix it, and I just snapped and just started screaming at him and told him to shut up. Right? The depth of my own wickedness. And yet, here's what I've learned and walking with the Lord. Before Jesus saved me, I viewed God's commands as cumbersome and burdensome because I could not keep them. God's standard for me was impossible, just like oftentimes the standard I hold Gideon to is impossible. And yet once I came to know what Christ did for me, I came to know his grace and his love towards me, I began to experience God's law and obedience towards him as something freeing and beautiful. Because I was no longer trying to earn the favor of God, the favor of God had already been given to me, and I could experience obedience to him in a way that actually taught me something and was for my good and his glory. For the first time in my life, I could experience, right, the brokenness over sin. And yet, no, God still loved me anyway, despite that, because of what Christ had purchased on the cross for me through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And God might free me to confess my sin and then, and then walk in obedience and sanctification. Guys, God invites us in his grace into obedience, not away from it. Why? Because God's law for us is good for us. God's commands for us are not bad things, they're for our good. God knows what is best. My pastor used to say something like this when we would be kind of engaging students in evangelism. He would kind of ask them what they thought about the law and most of them all had kind of the same objections. 
Like, it's hard. It's terrible. I don't like it. And my pastor would always say this. If God created the universe, though, do you think he might know what's best for us? Who would know better? The creation or the creator? Works the same way in a family. Who probably knows best what's good for my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Josiah? Josiah or me? There are many homes that operate like the two-and-a-half-year-old knows what's best. Those, those homes become chaotic pretty quickly. Right, we have rules, and we have, ob, uh, we have obligations for our children to follow because we love them, not because we hate them. And God's law works the same way. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Know God's grace for what it really is. And present God's grace to others for what it really is. Yes, it is freeing. Yes, it is merciful. Yes, it is amazing. But it frees you to obey him, not to walk away and live licentiously. Jesus secured on the cross for us the ability to know and obey God so that we might know him more fully. And guys, let me let you know one last thing. If you take this seriously this morning, if you take the the grace of God at face value and see it as what has secured for you your salvation, but also that it's freed you to obedience. If you walk in obedience to God's word, here is my my pledge to you. You will see the faithfulness of God show up in new and real and fresh ways in your life. That as amazing as God's grace looks in the midst of your sin, his faithfulness is made manifest even more so in your obedience. One thing I've learned over the course of time is I have gotten the privilege to see God being right over and over again of what he might ask of us if I simply trust and obey. We don't come to him by trust and obedience, but we we come to him by grace through faith. But you see a more robust God if you learn to trust and obey. So we take communion this morning. I would invite you to reflect on this. I would invite that you think about your sin and reflect on it and then confess and repent it towards God. And then as you confess and repent of that sin, that you might ask God to reveal to you ways that you might be diminishing his grace by using it instead of allowing it to change you. And then that you would come up here and you would take communion and you would freely worship and celebrate what Christ has done for you because he has secured for you a salvation where you and I are declared sons of God. We're a part of the family. The same way Gideon is a part of my family. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the family. And you have a hope and a joy laid up for you in heaven. But here on this side of eternity, as you walk through your sanctification, you can do so in such a way that you see the faithfulness God of God new and fresh as you walk in obedience to him. Let's trust his word. Let's trust what Paul says. 
and let's rejoice both in the grace of God, but also in the holiness of God and what he's revealed to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good. I thank you, I thank you for using men like Paul to address our heart questions because the reality is, Lord, it's 2,000 years later after Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, and yet we can, at times, struggle with the very same things. I mean, not exactly the same picture, but shadows of the same thing. Father, forgive us of our sins. We lay them at the feet of the cross. May we trust in Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to forgive us of that sin, of all of our sins. And then, Lord, would we understand that that grace frees us to obedience to you. Lord, help us to trust and obey you so that we might have a more robust view of you and what you've done for us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness towards us while we were faithless towards you. Continue to reveal that to us so we might make much of you and your son. And we ask all of this in Jesus' good name.